in those cases, of course, you know, when it, when you're talking about a 10-year-old child, of course, the, there's no way this kid could have consented to having their biometrics taken uh, and, and then and then ultimately uh, being used essentially to strip them of their nationality. In June 2021, Human Rights Watch reported that the Bangladeshi government had handed over a detailed database of Rohingya refugee biometric information to Myanmar's government. Refugees had been told to register with the UNHCR to be recognized as refugees and get services. But many did not realize that their data would be shared by the Burmese government. In this episode, Declarations will be speaking to Carl Steinacker and Belkis Willi about the debates over refugees and digital identity, which have exploded following this report. From Afghanistan to Kenya, our biometric registration of refugees has become the new normal with extensive human rights implications. Carl Steinacker is an expert on digital identity. As a manager and a diplomat of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, he was for several years in charge of registration, biometrics, and the digital identity of refugees. Currently, he works with the International Civil Society Center and Digital Equity on this and related digital issues. Bilkis Willi is a senior lecturer with the Conflict and Crisis Division at Human Rights Watch. Before taking up the role, she worked as a Human Rights Watch senior Iraq researcher. And before that was Kuwait, Qatar and Yemen researcher. Previously, she worked at the World Organization Against Torture in Libya. Well, thank you uh, for being here on Declaration Belkis and Carl um, and welcome. And so can we start by asking, Belkis, can you tell us a bit about the Human Rights Watch report in June 2021 about Rohingya biometric data use in Bangladesh? Absolutely. Uh, um, you know, thank thank you for having me on, and 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 thank you for bringing up this this topic, one that I think is extremely important to talk about, and and thankfully is gaining more attention. We as Human Rights Watch had been interested in looking at specific cases around the world where humanitarian uh, contexts were integrating uh, more and more new technologies. Uh, including things like uh, biometric identification systems and and really trying to see whether there were risks uh, to beneficiaries today the subjects that were being created by this um, this kind of unrolling uh, rolling out of new technologies and um, and we came across the example of Bangladesh where UNHCR was brought in by the Bangladeshi government in 2018 to do this uh, vast registration exercise to register all Rohingya who had fled Myanmar into Bangladesh. And they gathered um, lots of personal data on these individuals. Uh, and the main purpose, they said, for gathering this, this personal data, including biometrics uh, like fingerprints and iris scans, um, was to provide all of this information to the Bangladeshi government so that Bangladesh could issue all Rohingya refugees with a smart card, which is a a card that would allow refugees to get access uh, to services in Bangladesh and would allow, to a certain extent, for free movement within uh, Bangladesh, within the camps. And um, at the time, Rohingya, a small part of the Rohingya community was actually quite worried about this registration process. And they were worried, among other things, because they said they did not want their data being shared by Bangladesh with Myanmar. 
And UNHCR very publicly said at the time of the registration exercise, including on, you know, uh, Rohingya radio shows, so really targeting the Rohingya community, um, they were saying, don't worry, without getting informed consent, we would never share your data with the government of Myanmar, nor would Bangladesh. We are only collecting your data for the purposes of, you know, issuing these smart cards, allowing you to stay in Bangladesh. And um, and so then this exercise proceeded. And essentially, Rohingya at that point had no choice but to agree. Uh, they couldn't really opt out because if they opted out, they would lose access to services and lose access to the smart card. Um and, and, and that was sort of where, where we came into the story because we were concerned that this was actually a lie and that, that Bangladesh was sharing extensive amounts of information, including biometric data, with Myanmar. And now one has to keep in mind that the Rohingya had fled Myanmar because they were fleeing genocide uh, by, by the military there. Um, and that this was being shared without their informed consent with uh, Myanmar. And we were gravely concerned that UNHCR was essentially um, creating the entire system of information, of data that was uh, then able to be shared by Bangladesh with Myanmar because Bangladesh did not have granular data on the Rohingya community at the time. So it was really UNHCR who created this portfolio of, 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 of very sensitive information that, that we were able to demonstrate in our report was shared with Myanmar and used um, to launch an exercise by which Myanmar essentially would review the files of everyone in Bangladesh and decide whether or not they should be repatriated. Um, but, but, but as I say, a more concern even was really this, this choice of UNHCR to lie to the Rohingya community and not to get informed consent, um, but, but to, to share their data with Bangladesh, knowing it would be shared with Myanmar. And that idea of informed consent, uh, we're going to come back to and is incredibly important in this story. But, but just before that, can I turn to Carl and ask, can we take a broader picture on this? Why are refugees registered at all? What's the history of refugee registration? How has it changed? And in what ways has using biometrics been of benefit? Uh, yes, uh, thanks, Yasser and, uh, and Belkis. And, uh, the the question you you're posing i think is quite interesting because uh, there is obviously a story behind this and why we are where we are uh, if you were to go back to the founding documents of unhcr in this particular case the refugee convention or the statute you will not see uh, that the issue of registration is mentioned at all um unhcr has uh, taken over this um, task uh, much later uh, after it, it was founded and uh, for political purposes. Um, you know, uh, my former uh, colleague Jeff Crisp, a Chatham House fellow, uh, has extensively published uh, about this. You know, in the 1960s and 70s, when decolonization uh, took place, you know, the Western powers, which, you know, were funding the aid uh, industry or what was to become the aid industry, had an interest that the newly independent countries keep their borders open for, for refugees. You know, there were proxy wars going on uh, in Indochina and elsewhere, wars uh, in the Horn of Africa, uh, in, in, in Southern Africa, the liberation wars. And, and so the, the Western <clears throat> powers basically told the newly independent and, and, and rather poor countries of the South that keep your borders open, we will take care 
of those refugees. They will not be a burden to you. You know, you put them in camps, we will feed them. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously that's a short version of what happened, but, but that's how it all started because obviously we, if you <clears throat> uh, want to assist or protect a population, uh, a foreign population, you need to register them. You need to understand who is to be uh, protected and assisted. And um, so uh, UNHCR started uh, registering uh, in, a, in a very um, simple paper and pen fashion, uh, basically uh, to do food lists. You know, when the, up to the early 90s, you know, UNHCR sourced and distributed food itself. It was not WFP. And the registration department was a sub, was a desk basically uh, within the food uh, supply. Uh, department in, in in Geneva, and 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 food lists were, were done, and in every every UNHCR operation, in, in, you know, did it kind of differently, and 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 so on, and so on. Only in the 1990s, you know, the um, the organization started to um, you know to improve, to put in digital tools, uh, you know, uh, Excel sheets maybe to start with, or um, you know, and then more sophisticated systems, and they took pictures uh, um, and, and and created a, a registration system. And uh, they were allowed to do so by their countries, uh, by the asylum countries, because the asylum countries, under the deal I mentioned before, had neither the will nor the means, you know, to register. Uh, they had problems even in their own civil registry system to provide uh, uh, documents to their own population, never mind to a um, um, what do you call it, uh, to a foreign population. So UNHCR had this niche task, which it uh, uh, further sophisticated uh, over time, you know, with the availability of uh, IT tools in the, you know, after uh, uh, 2003, 2004, biometrics was introduced. Um, and uh, But there something uh, happened in between, and that was September 11th. And September 11th, uh, made uh, most government realize that, you know, the registration of refugees should not be a niche um, activity left to a UNHCR or to, to, to humanitarians. That for security reasons, and, you know, and, and states are very interested in security issues, um, you know, states should take a much greater interest in registration. Now, the result of the last 20 years of that event uh, in September 11th is that uh, a lot of countries, even poor countries, have been equipped with the tools to do their own uh, registration. Um, countries do, uh, uh, which formerly basically were not interested in the food list of UNHCR, now want to have the data of the refugees on their territory. UNHCR is actually doing less and less registration because countries are taking over their task. Uh, you know, recent examples, for instance, Turkey. And uh, and basically, where it happens, where it still happens, registration done by, by UNHCR and the, uh, is done at a much more sophisticated technical level, but under much greater surveillance and political influence of the countries of asylum. And I think the problem in, 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 in Bangladesh and uh, in, in Myanmar um, is also political, obviously. Uh, uh, number one is there is a, a data sharing agreement between 
UNHCR and the uh, government of Bangladesh, which has not been published, so we don't know what, what has been agreed. And secondly, you know, the Rohingya problem in Myanmar is a long-standing problem. It didn't start with the refugee outflow in, 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 in 2016-17. Uh, it, it's much more long-standing. And the UN and the international community has agreed that the government of Myanmar has the right to verify who of those Rohingyas is actually a Myanmar citizen and not. So what I would think should be two separate uh, uh, issues, namely, on the one hand, you know, provide assistance and protection to refugees in Bangladesh. And on the other hand, the so-called verification of citizenship of those people should seems to have been, and that is my assumption, seems to have been mixed up. Um, but I mean, that is how I look at it from, from a distance and, and might give you a bit of a, of a background to, to the issue at, at hand. Yes, absolutely. That's um, really interesting uh, taking through the history of what UNHCR are doing and why they're doing it. Um, so we, you touched upon the idea of security and after 9-11, that being a prime, um, prime concern of uh, certain states. And that's one of uh, the UN's justifications. But Belkis, can I ask, how else does the UN defend its use of biometrics? Well, you know, there's, um, there's this feeling, and it's, it's not just UN agencies um, that, that put forward this argument, but it, it is um, also many donors, donor countries that are funding UN, uh, and even some other uh, humanitarian organizations, they argue that we have a big problem in the aid sector, in the humanitarian aid sector, when uh, with regards to fraud. And, um, you know, essentially the idea that, you know, if there is an individual who was meant to receive a bag of rice, how do we ensure that he is the one that's receiving the rice and not his brother or his neighbor or his uncle? Um, and it's been... Um, sort of seen by by some in the sector that biometrics really is the answer to preventing fraud. The idea being that if you have someone's iris scan or someone's fingerprint, you're really sure that the person you're giving the bag of rice to is the person who was meant to receive it. Um, and, and so a lot of a lot of the push towards uh, mainstreaming biometrics, biometric registration, bi biometric identification systems comes from this um, you know, push and desire to, to prevent fraud. I would say on that, you know, that assumes that the fraud is happening at that level of assistance um, uh, as opposed to higher up the chain. And there are, you know, some, some uh, uh, organizations, research organizations that have actually argued that often that's not where the fraud is happening. Um, so it potentially is happening higher up the chain in terms of who even gets onto these lists to begin with. Um, or, or or elsewhere in the system. And, and it hasn't really been, as far as I can tell, sort of seriously interrogated whether, you know, use of biometrics in this way really does uh, uh, properly address the issue of fraud. The other um, uh, issue is efficiency. So, um, you know, organizations are working in more and more complex environments, are expected to achieve more and more by way of, 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 of giving people assistance, and so the feeling in those contexts is that if you're doing, for example, a major food distribution uh, and you can quickly 
scan people's finger and then give them their bag of rice, that that's really the quickest way, the most efficient way to be uh, providing assistance. And, you know, some organizations even argue it allows for less staff in the field, therefore less overhead. So more money that the organization uh, gets is going actually to beneficiaries. Again, this is something that I haven't seen sort of critically examined and demonstrated. Uh, it's not to say that it's it's not true. It's just that I think donors and UN agencies uh, and some others have jumped onto this idea that biometrics really is the answer when it comes to efficiency and to fraud prevention without really trying to first um, test whether those theories are correct. And, and, and just to add at the, on the flip side of that, one has to much more seriously engage with the with the with the notion which which our our report uh, hopefully makes a compelling argument for that mass collections of personal data particularly biometrics are inherently dangerous once you create these systems you whoever you are that's created them you know you you won't be able to control in the absolute what happens to these systems and how they're used um and the risks for those who's, who's, who are the, the, you know, the, the ones whose data are in these systems, you know, there are potential risks that you, you could foresee at the time. There are potential risks that, that, you know, that develop later with, with changes in, in, in the situation on the ground. And so these, these, this needs to be much more seriously discussed and reckoned with when the benefits of biometric systems are, 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 are being put forward. Absolutely. And um, even if they're not verified, that those ideas of speed and efficiency of the biometric system, donor countries, as you say, find them quite compelling. Carl, can I ask, how does that kind of play out on the ground? Um, those ideas um, uh, of speed and efficiency, but also of dignity. Yes, indeed. You know, um, I have in my professional career when I was a young aid worker, uh, very much welcomed the arrival of biometrics. And I still think uh, uh, that the advantages in some cases, not in all cases, outweigh uh, the, the, the way it was done in the analog days. Um, you know, in those days, in the, let's say, the 1990s or so, um, you, you have uh, mass influx of people often. Uh, with no or very little identification documents. And uh, the, the the way it was done was very, as I said, very simple. Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, the so-called head of household or the, the man in the family was identified and then uh, his, his name was collected and then the number of uh, um, family members added to it. So it was Mr. X plus five. That was how it was done. Um, so no individual uh, uh, follow-up on issues was possible. But moreover, you know, at a certain time, because obviously of uh, efficiency uh, reasons and, and, and to prevent fraud, you know, those populations needed to be what was called verified, you know. Uh, and, and the way it was done was incredibly undignified, I have to say that. It was, you know... Um, you know, the army or the police would surround a camp in the middle of the night. Uh, the whole population would uh, be chased out of their uh, huts or uh, dwellings, uh, be assembled in the open, uh, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, in enclosures which were specifically built for that. Uh, the population uh, 
had to sit there the whole day uh, in rain or in the heat, uh, uh, wait uh, to come forward, you know, to be, uh, uh, you know, their uh, uh, finger stamped on an ink pad or or, or things like that. Um, it, it, it was really, I mean, if you want to see something which comes close to what happened to refugees at the time, uh, you go on YouTube and you look how sheep is uh, collected and, and, and counted in Australia, and 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 uh, it, it 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 was it was almost traumatizing, uh, you know, to to many of us who were in these operations, and um, and obviously uh, biometrics came as the with a promise that this undignified treatment of, of of people would end, and it did end, but it brought other risks, and 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 Beatrice has been uh, alluding to that. So, um, and it is, I have to say, um, no doubt that, uh, that uh, the introduction of um, uh, biometrics has uh, uh, prevented fraud. Uh, there is uh, ample evidence that, you know, whenever you introduce uh, um, biometrics, you know, the, 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 the number of beneficiaries goes down by 10, 20 percent or, or, or so. Um, however, it is obviously not... Uh, um, you know, something which resolves all issues. It does not resolve, and Belkis is right, uh, uh, fraudulent practices uh, elsewhere, you know, in the administration of lists, for instance. Or it does not, you know, a, a biometric imprint doesn't tell you whether you are a refugee or not. So if you have, for instance, nationals or non-illegible people who uh, register biometrically, well, yes, they are still there because, you know, your biometric imprint doesn't uh, say anything about who you are and whether you are entitled or not. And, uh, and again, there were many or there are many examples where, where people who are not um, in, in, entitled uh, put themselves on, 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 on refugee lists. And only a comparison between, you know, the biometric data uh, of aid agencies with the biometric data of the state, of the asylum state, for instance, uh, can reveal that. And it has happened. It has happened in, in, in many places. And um, another issue is, and, and Beckis may want to talk about it, is, uh, uh, you know, the long-term uh, um, effects this can have, this, this, uh, uh, this fraud, when, for instance, you know, in order to get a, 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 a ration card for a bigger family, you know, um, children at a one, at a young age are added to a family which actually do not belong to that family. And, uh, you know, and as those uh, children grow up and, 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 uh, want to have, uh, their own papers and, and, and then find out that somewhere else they are registered as refugees, as foreigners. So yes, there is merit in using uh, biometrics, but there is also, I would say, almost an overuse of uh, biometrics. You don't need biometrics, you know, to distribute a, a bar of soap, you know. Uh, even today, you know, uh, where so many refugees from so many countries now have identity papers. They come with identity papers, which was not the case 30 years ago. Uh, again, the question is, do we in each time need, need biometrics and so on? But, you know, from an administrative point of view, from an AIDS agency uh, point of view, of course, it's, it's very convenient to use uh, um, biometrics, and that's why, why it is done. So now let's talk a bit about the problems uh, of this. We've touched upon a few of these, and I think 
central to this issue, I'm sure we both agree, is consent. And there's a grey area whether or not refugees can really give unforced consent over the use, storing and sharing of their biometric data. And because the nature of biometric information is completely fundamental to their personhood, this is why um, biometrics is causing such a debate around the world at the moment, from Ghana's new ID card, the fear of the Taliban are gaining access to biometric information collected by aid agencies in Afghanistan. So, um, Belkis, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of consent? Uh, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll pick up on, on, on the broader question and then I'll jump to what you were alluding to, Carl, which I think is really important when we talk specifically about children. Um, but, but broadly speaking, there has been um, a general framework used in the aid sector um, that when we are talking about collection capture of, of personal data, that this is based on the concept of informed consent. And the idea is that, you know, when UNHCR is uh, registering the Rohingya population in camps in Bangladesh, um, a registration officer will, you know, explain why the data is being uh, captured and will ask the individual if they agree to, to, to those reasons. Now, as, you, as your question pointed out, if an individual is, um, you know, fleeing armed conflict, it desperately needs access to food, water, shelter, um, it, it's hard to argue, even if they do consent, that they really had um, the, the, the choice and that it wasn't coerced. Um, so there's sort of a question mark in the power dynamic. You know, can um, we ever see someone that is in this desperate situation with no other choice? You know, can, can, can we see them to be making this decision without, without coercion? But the other aspect is also the informed part of it. You know, if you have an individual who's agreeing to be registered by UNHCR and is given you know, the reason of you're going to get issued the smart card, um, you know, is it is it clear to them what that actually means? You know, in, in the case of, of, of Bangladesh that we spoke about there, you know, in our view, based on our findings, UNHCR was failing to tell people that there were other reasons why their data was being taken. Um, but, but, you know, there are circumstances in which aid organizations will sort of vaguely talk about why data is being collected, but in terms that mean that no individual could be um, giving informed consent. Sometimes you have aid organizations that are, let's say, working with uh, third-party private sector actors like, you know, online banking platforms, applications uh, in, the, in the banking sector for things like cash assistance. Often the organizations that are actually bringing in these companies, they don't even necessarily have full understanding of what these private sector companies are doing with the data that gets shared with them. So, there, so there's really no way to, to, to imagine in a context like that, that, you know, where, uh, you know, an aid organization itself doesn't even understand what might happen to this individual's data, that they'd be able to explain that fully to the individual. And the other aspect of this, of course, is that in many contexts, you have to be registered in order to receive any assistance whatsoever. So if you say no to, for example, providing your biometrics, um, that means you don't get assistance, end of story. And so in that context, I mean, there, it seems, again, sort of laughable to talk about consent because, because that's really not what this is. 
Um, I would say there is a discussion happening, I, I think a very interesting one among some organizations to essentially say, given all of the complexities around these power dynamics in these contexts and the, the inability for us to really be talking about informed consent as the right paradigm, that we actually move away from that. And instead, when we talk about data collection in these contexts, it's about information and transparency being given to data subjects, but it's not about informed consent because we understand that that cannot be achieved. Just to jump on to, to children specifically, there there's an, an added complexity that, that Carl brought up, which is that in many circumstances around the world, we see um, you know, adults uh, as Carl said, you know, essentially trying to get rations for, you know, a family of seven instead of a family of four. Um, and so they'll borrow um, a kid who might be their relative, might be their neighbor's child, and register that child as part of their family in order to get that assistance. And in countries, uh, and I can speak specifically about Kenya, which is an example we've been looking at, in countries that have done this comparison exercise that, that Carl mentioned, where they look at um, people who've been registered as refugees and compare that to their national registry. And then they say, okay, if you registered as a refugee, that means you are not a national of this country. There, you, you, you can run into some serious difficulties. And in Kenya, you have about 40,000 people who were registered as refugees as children. They were not refugees, they are Kenyan nationals, but they were taken in by, by, by Somali families, ethnically Somali families, and registered with, with, with adults as refugees. And subsequently, when they've turned 18 and tried to apply for the national ID card, they're being rejected. And they're being rejected because their fingerprints are in the refugee database. And, and, and so in, in those cases, of course, you know, when, it, when you're talking about a 10-year-old child, um, of course, the, the, there's no way this kid could have consented to having their biometrics taken uh, and, and, then, and, and then ultimately uh, being used essentially to strip them of their nationality. And these ideas about consent are also about data sharing, aren't they? Because uh, in 2019, the Houthis in Yemen were so resistant to biometric registration that they got in a dispute with the World Food Programme. And these ideas about uh, the, uh, uh, they're quite unsure about who the data is going to be shared with, especially if it uh, hasn't had very secure consent in the first place. Um, these anxieties run quite deep. Can you talk about um, Syrian refugees in Jordan in particular on this issue? Um, absolutely. So, so um, as you said, I mean, there, there are data sharing agreements that are entered into between potentially two states. So, you know, a, a state that's hosting um, nationals from another state and they choose to share data between them, like we were talking about in between Bangladesh and, and Myanmar. We also have um, UN agencies entering to, into data sharing agreements with the host governments in the countries where they're operating. So if they come in and they're, you know, gathering uh, personal information on, on, on individuals, on refugees, they then enter into a data sharing agreement with the government as to what they're going to share. Now, as Carl mentioned earlier in the call, these data sharing agreements are secret. They are confidential. They are maintained as documents between the UN agency and the government in question or the two governments in question, and they're not made public. Um, and thus, we have no idea what, um, what the UN, for example, is agreeing to share in a specific country context with the government there. 
And, and so, of course, you know, if you're an individual uh, refugee who's having your um, data collected by a UN agency, you have no way of knowing what that UN agency is going to share with the host government beyond what the staff of UN of the UN are, are, are telling you. That's really the only way you can find out. And in the context of Jordan, you know, it's slightly baffling. And, and this is based on research I was doing at the end of last year. I was interviewing Syrian and non-Syrian uh, refugees in Jordan to understand when they were registered by UNHCR uh, as refugees, what they were told was going to happen to their data. Now, they were told that their data was being registered so they could get access to assistance. Um, but they were not told that their data, some of it at least, was going to be shared with the government of Jordan. Now, Syrian refugees, when they arrive in Jordan, they undergo two registration processes, one uh, where they register with UNHCR, and then separately, the uh, Jordanian Ministry of Interior registers them as well and, 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 and collects their data. And UNHCR doesn't share its system or its refugee database with Jordan because Jordan then is able to construct its own on these Syrian refugees. However, based on our um, sort of questioning with UNHCR, UNHCR ultimately did admit to us um, that they are sharing some uh, details on refugees that they register with the Jordanian government. Now, this is something they have never told any of the refugees over the many, many years that we've interviewed refugees in Jordan. And it, it, this is a context where I cannot understand why. Um, we're not talking about people being registered in the middle of a war zone with mortars landing overhead, you know, where, where there's sort of a limit in time that registration officers have. We're talking about people being registered in a country uh, in a very calm, relatively calm context, either in camps or, you know, in uh, comfortable headquarter offices in, in the city of Amman. And in that context, you know, as per UNHCR's um, data protection policy, as per what its data protection officer has told me, staff really should be telling uh, refugees when they're registering them what is going to happen to their data and whether some of that will be shared with the government of Jordan. And, uh, and they're not. So in this kind of context, Carl, uh, where we're talking about consent not being uh, given, even in a calm context, um, this surely speaks to a wider debate about power relations within the aid sector. You know, the, the question of whether a refugee can really refuse biometric registration to an organization providing their food and shelter is part of really an a more general imbalance. Um, would you say, in, in the aid sector? For example, in, in 2018, Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh held a protest on supplying biometric data. Um, so, Carl, can we talk about how these power relations really play out on the ground? No, obviously, there are these power relations, and they are there in a massive way, but not different from what is happening if you uh, go in Britain and ask uh, for unemployment benefits. You know, uh, obviously, uh, every administration, uh, regardless where it is, will demand uh, data from you, you know, in order to assess your identity to start with, and secondly, your social or your income situation, uh, so to make a decision whether or not uh, you receive assistance. So I do agree what Belki said, that uh, um, the issue of informed consent is, 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 is misplaced, is misguided. Uh, it's, um, there's also, I would say, within the uh, aid organization like UNHCR, the view that this is actually uh, uh, mandatory. 
uh, and that this is happening as a part of ordre public, you know, uh, especially given that wherever this registration of an entire uh, refugee population takes place, this takes place on behest, on behalf of the asylum government, you know. UNHCR would never start registering without the consent of the government on which territory it operates. And so obviously, obviously, there is data exchange and there always has been data exchange, even in the pre-digital uh, uh, era between the uh, UNHCR and the government. And therefore that this happens in, in Jordan, number one, uh, doesn't surprise me and number two, doesn't worry me. What is worrisome was indeed uh, what happened in, 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 in Bangladesh, because, you know, even myself, having worked in the sector for so long, understand and have understood that UNHCR and the eight uh, uh, agencies would never share data with the very same government which persecutes uh, the people and they run away with. So I think we have to be very careful in this discussion what we are discussing which situations we are discussing, which kind of data sharing we are discussing. and But what is important is that we are discussing, that this conversation takes place. And my biggest worry is that this conversation doesn't take place. Uh, what is happening uh, uh, is basically uh, uh, we have on the one hand uh, eight agencies who operate the way they do, uh, not accountable to anybody except the governments they um, uh, they receive funding from, and then you have uh, organizations like Human Rights Watch, which kind of investigate, uh, I don't want to say behind their backs, but, you know, which basically have a, a very hard time to, to, to get to the ground of issues which should be open, which should be open in the public, be discussed, and subject of, you know, of a conversation, of a public discourse, so that we can agree on standards, that we can agree on methodology, that we know in a transparent uh, way what happens. And I think one of the biggest shortcomings uh, we have when we talk about what is happening in the aid uh, uh, sector uh, and, and, and the power disparity is that there is no recourse. You know, if you look at the GDPR as a, as a, as a, as a way, uh, you know, you can organize uh, data protection, um, the uh, GDPR uh, uh, the General Data Protection Regulation in the European Union requires that the data subject, you know, has a way, number one, to demand access to his or her data. You have a right to know what is uh, stored, uh, collected, stored about you, never mind shared, but at least, you know, what is there. And number two, you have the right, you know, to demand um that erroneous data be corrected. And in order to have such a system, you need institutions, an institutional setup, which exists in those countries. And I think the biggest shortcoming we have in the aid sector is that there is neither the right of individuals to know what data is there about them, there is no right to correct it, and number three, there is no institutional setup to make this happen. And so, Carl, to finish off with, can I ask you about what can we see in the future of biometrics and refugees? You were talking there about um, different rights uh, being conferred, about recourse, uh, about knowledge of what your data is going to be um, 
used for and where it's going to be shared. Is there a more nuanced, specific, consensual uh, use of data which we could hope for in the future, um, in your opinion? Well, I, first of all, I mean to come back. There, is, there might be an obligation, you know, there might be an obligation to uh, render your data, you know, in order to, you know, have asylum and in order to receive assistance. And that should not be obscured by a so-called, you know, uh, informed consent. That might be the case, but, you know, uh, but then if that is the case, we, I guess we should define exactly how this works. And then obviously the question is, yes, what rights does the individual data subject have in that, in these circumstances? And that this situation as we have it now in this, uh, in the aid sector, where, which is completely unregulated, uh, ends, you know, and that discussion uh, uh, has to start somewhere. And I'm, I'm therefore um, supportive to, to Human Rights Watch and others who, who, who point at issues. But in the end, you know, it's an issue the, the, the international community uh, as a whole has to deal with, you know, and the, and the, and the countries uh, and the governments which, uh, uh, you know, on which territory those uh, uh, refugees and aid recipients live, but also the government, you know, who fund and support uh, uh, the UN, and uh, and that is not only UNHCR. I mean, uh, the World Food Program has much more data on individuals than UNHCR has. You know, IOM has data. Uh, the, the the Red Cross has has has, has millions of data sets. Uh, so this is this is uh, you know a very uh, necessary discussion which involves many actors. And can I ask you the same question, Belkis, about the future of biometrics and refugees and where you see um, maybe a, a more positive or hopeful story coming out of this? You know, I think um, there are more conversations taking place than, 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 let's say, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. As Carl said, you know, there was a real um, uh, promise that you know many individuals in the aid sector uh, bought into for very good reason with the advent of biometrics and then you know it's taken some time to start to see some of the shortcomings and potentially pitfalls um and so what we've seen which i think is positive is that some organizations you know who formerly for example didn't have a full-time data protection officer have hired one You've got um, organizations, you know, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about UNHCR. As Carl said, many UN agencies are collecting a lot of personal information on beneficiaries around the world. Um, but a lot of UN agencies have p- passed their own data protection policies. Um, some of these policies are, are, are good uh, for the most part. What we haven't seen yet um, is full implementation of those policies. So, for example... UNHCR passed a data protection policy in 2015, uh, uh, you know, a a good one. Um, And yet, you know, this policy, for example, requires that every time the agency engages in a new project that's going to see new data collection, that they carry out a data protection impact assessment. These, These are absolutely vital processes to ensuring that when data collection, when data transfer happens, it's done safely or as safely as possible and risks are thought through and mitigated. Uh, and yet, most of the time, and I, I say this having spoken to many at UNHCR, most of the time, these these data protection impact assessments aren't happening, and it's not for kind of malicious reasons, but it's because this, you know, this this data protection policy was passed in 2015, but it wasn't fully resourced. 
So there aren't enough people within the organization that know how to do data protection impact assessments and that, and that are being paid, you know, to, to do them uh, whenever whenever that's required. So I think, you know, there's still a long way to go, but we are seeing organizations grappling with these issues much more seriously. Um, and ultimately, the call that I have is to the donors. The donors hold the purse strings. And money is a big part of the solution to these problems. Money for, you know, well-trained data protection officers, for policies that get implemented, for, you know, the safest possible technological systems to house, uh, uh, you know, personal and sensitive data to, to minimize leaks, to, ma- to minimize hacks. Um, so it's really going to be up to the donors to start putting a lot more money forward um, to ensure that when they give money to organizations to collect data, they're also ensuring that these organizations are perfectly equipped to do so as safely as possible. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for that really interesting discussion, um, Carl and Belka. And I think that's just about what we have time for. But thank you very much for coming on Declaration and uh, sharing uh, your uh, thoughts about this matter. And hopefully this will be one of many conversations to come. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for our guests, Carl Steenaker and Bilkis Willi, for that fascinating discussion. So many insights have come out of it. Just makes you think. This arc is something that we have seen throughout this season of declarations. The expectations of new technology to solve complex problems in turn having manifold human rights implications. This is an area where I'm sure we will hear a lot more in time. Signing off, this is Mariam Tanveer from the University of Cambridge Centre of Governance and Human Rights. This is Declarations. Goodbye.